You are listening to The Living Writers Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. My name is Sarah, and I'm here with Molly, my co-host, and our guest this week, Sarah Gruen, who um, has recently published a book called Water for Elephants, and it was reviewed last week in the New York Times Book Review. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Sarah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So what piqued your interest in writing about the Depression and about a traveling circus at that time? Um, I opened up the paper one day and I saw a picture of a a circus and it was from the 1920s. And um, it was taken by a photographer named Edward J. Kelty, who built uh, a camera that was capable of producing negatives 12 by 24 inches. So he took these really fantastic panoramic shots that included many, many people and animals and costumes and freaks. And um, they were all in really great detail. So I saw this one picture and was just totally fascinated by it. I had to my knowledge, I don't think I ever went to a circus before in my life. I'm, you know, from northern Canada and no background in it, whatever, but the picture just fascinated me. And so I ordered his book of photographs and then I ordered another book of photographs. And uh, at that point, there was just really no turning back. So I got a um, suggested, suggested bibliography from the archivist at Circus World in Baraboo, Wisconsin, which is the original winter quarters of the Ringling Brothers and um, most of the books on that list were out of print since 1942, but I was able to track them down through the Internet and rare booksellers. And after that, uh, I went off to Sarasota, which is the current uh, winter quarters of the Ringling Brothers, but more importantly, it's the home of the Ringling Museum, and they have a circus museum out back of their uh, main museum. And I spent a few days prowling around there and just picking up on details and crawling in and under wagons until I sort of got approached by security. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Um, I guess before we go any farther, I should um, do this thing that I forgot to do that explains what the book is. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So Sarah's book, Water for Elephants, is um, a fictional memoir um, of an old man looking back at the days he spent um, in his early 20s on a traveling circus as a vet. And he um, kind of ended up there in this accidental escape um, during a traumatic time of his life that um, coincided with the Depression. Um, Yeah. (laughs) I don't It's just, you know, it's one of those coffee days that we're all having. (laughs) (laughs) I'm loading up. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's not exactly as exciting as a circus right now. Um, So you just talked about the sorts of books you looked at. um, And I read before um, from someone else who spoke with you that some of the events in the books are based on stories that you found in those books or at the museum. Mm-hmm. Um, did you actually, first of all, talk to any retired circus performers or anyone who was involved? And can you tell us a couple of fun anecdotes that maybe don't give away too much? Sure. Yeah. Actually, I can tell you one that I didn't use um, because, well, for plot points that you guys who've read it will know. But um, one retired clown told me that up to half the cooch girls, um, unbeknownst to their audiences and also their post-show clients, were actually transvestites. <laughs> Really? <laughs> yeah. Oh, <laughs> and um, th- one of the ones that I did use was that the circuses in the during Prohibition um, often would make a run up to Canada at the beginning of the season and load up on alcohol. And um, the way they'd get it across the border, if they had elephants, they'd stick it in the elephant car because the border guards were afraid of the elephants. But if they had camels, they'd stick it in with the camels because camels spit. And so the border guards didn't want to go near them either. <laughs> Um, were any of the specific characters in the novel based on real-life characters or any way in, informed or uh, The people, no. The elephant, yes. She was a distillation of two in particular, um, and one of them... Uh, one of them I can, I can talk about, because I, but the other one would give away too big a plot point. But one of the... One of the in 1903, Carl Hagenbeck, who is a circus legend, he sold an outfit in Dallas, um, an, an elephant named Old Mom, who was supposed to be his most brilliant elephant. And um, this, this, her new owners were really very upset to find that she couldn't 
follow any commands, whatever, and had to be literally pulled and pushed from lot to lot. And several years later, Carl Hagenbeck uh, came and visited her in her new home, and somebody described her as stupid in his presence, and he got very upset, and he exclaimed about it in German. And um, at that moment, it was sort of a watershed. They all realized that that old mom only understood German. And so she was retrained in English, and she went on to an illustrious career and died at the age of, I think, 80. Wow. <laughs> Quite an investment to get an elephant as a pet, I guess. Um, <laughs> I've been considering it. Yeah, I think you need like a square mile. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you make a commitment to help those elephants who were listening to earlier become musicians, it's a lifetime affair. Um, let's see. Um, so we're talking a little bit about different stories um, and some of the research you did. How do you think the mythology of the circus and the freak show and the reality, maybe, you know, together or apart, are important parts of American history? Why is this something that people are so interested in finding out about? I think um, I think human nature makes people sort of, it's the train wreck theory. People want to know about freaks and look at freaks. And I actually chose not to make them the focus of my book. And um, that was a conscious decision because I didn't, I didn't want to be somebody who was, um, who was taking advantage of, of people who were deformed or, or in some way different. And in the thirties, that was good employment for those people because the, the famous freaks uh, were actually richer than anybody else on the show. Um, but I chose not to go that route. But, but for instance, there were, there was a three legged man named Frank Lentini um, and his third leg was fully developed. So he was actually able to uh, use it to play soccer when he was a kid. I mean, he would run and he would kick with the third leg. And then there was um, Jean Libera, who is um, who had a parasitic twin, which is basically um, a, a twin that fuses to the other twin in the womb. And so it, it comes out looking like an infant sticking out of the other person's, the non-parasitic twin's chest, except that the head is embedded in the chest. Well, Jean Libera named his parasitic twin Jacques. And... Um, and he was extremely rich, and he owned a mansion, and he had a wife and four children, although it's kind of hard for me to imagine that happening. But um, So there's always been a, a great deal of interest. I mean, just the, the history of the sideshow shows that there's been a great deal of interest in, in, in freaks, but that was just something I didn't choose to focus on. Me? <laughs> <laughs> this is the problem with the wow. two-host solution. Wow. <laughs> Um, so many problems. I just don't know. So, let me think. Um, okay. <laughs> we're trying to trade it off, but apparently that's not going to work. We're talking a little bit about, um, I mean, in terms of the freaks, you're talking about not wanting to focus on them, but one of the differences between people that is um, something of an issue in the novel are the ethnic relations and also the demarcation between performers mm -hmm. and um, people that are just sort of working behind the scenes. Were those things that you picked up in your research or just thought of would make sense because of the era or that you felt you should put in there? Actually, kind of a combination story? of both. The, um, the stratification between workers and uh, performers and circus bosses was, was extremely real. Um, but I also thought that it would be disingenuous to write a book set in 1931 without addressing the issue of uh, rising anti-Semitism, both in Europe and, of course, here. Um, so the circus is thought of... I'll just do this interview myself. So the circus is thought of, <laughs> is thought of as sort of an escape. Like when you think you take your kids, you run away and have uh -huh. fun. And in many ways... Um, the protagonist of your novel was running away to join the circus, like little kids everywhere threatened to do um, when their parents ground them. Except he does it accidentally. Except he does it accidentally. He has a nervous breakdown, a and he just finds yeah. himself there. But it's just the idea of circus's escape. Yeah. Um, how do you think that tied in with the mood of the time? Um, I think that circuses are an escape more for the audience than for the circus workers, because... Um, it, the, the logistics, another reason I chose not to focus on the freaks, and I also chose not to focus on what happened in the big top, um, is that the logistics of moving a city, a tent city, that housed 1,500 people from town to town to town six days a week, 
um, were just incredible. I, I, there are books about it, and it's just, I, it, you know, I don't think we could recreate that unless you had people who were there at the time and could show you how to do it. I just don't think we could recreate that. One thing we were talking about earlier today is um, how your book is something like a road novel almost. Um, I hadn't thought of it that way until Sarah brought it up. So she wants to take over. She's welcome. Sure, I hadn't thought of it that way either. (laughs) I started thinking about like the liminal space that the circus provided for um, the main character and how, like, even though he's on the road, it's this you know whole like cluster of large cluster of people that is like on the road together, all coming from different backgrounds. And especially um, towards the end, like, you really see the ties in between everyone. I can't remember the character name right now, but um, the man who... Gets, With like, Jake Leg? Yeah. Camel. Camel. Yeah. You, like, you just find out, like, how strong the ties are. It becomes like a family, because yeah. they're all traveling together. And, and, in fact, the train car is their home. It doesn't matter where they are physically or geographically it's the train car is their home and that is in fact the their their town mates and their neighbors are the people with them on the show mm-hmm. um i just found it especially interesting that like when it comes to the point where the protagonist needs to kind of like return home from the circus like that option is there but how it's kind of um posited against these other characters who actually either don't have that home or like have a strong belief that they don't have something to go back to and that the circus has really become like what they are and where they live and you know the whole life itself well and you know that that the depression played a large large part in that because for most people there really was nowhere else to go um, the the people in my fictional circus often don't get paid, but they get fed, and that was enough to keep you around in the Depression. And in 1929, right before the crash, there were 13 large train circuses traveling the States. Um, by 1933, I think there were only three left. And the way they collapsed was they would just run out of money, and they would be out on a route, And that's it. The bosses would leave town, and there were the animals and performers stranded. Um, When I was doing my research, one of the pictures that I saw at the Ringling Museum that really struck me um, and that I remember very clearly uh, is a picture of two dwarves uh, with all of their belongings in uh, pillowcases slung over their shoulders walking down the railway tracks. Yeah. so Jacob, the protagonist, who we just, we've just been calling the protagonist, oh, his name is Jacob. It's a little bit confusing sometimes. We're like, so Jacob did this, and people say, who's Jacob? Um, is very, very interested in seeing the elephants. We should probably get back to the elephants oh. here um, when he joins the circus, but there isn't one. And it seems like the elephant is the linchpin of the circus myth for the people that come and see the circus, for the ringmaster, for August, who is sort of the... Uh, uh, caretaker of the animals overall, and for um, Jacob. Why do you think that's so important to people that there be an elephant in the circus? Well, back in those days, the shows were literally judged on the number of elephants. Or they called them bulls, but the, on the number of bulls that they had. And um, Uncle Al, who is the ringmaster of of my fictional Benzini Brothers, most spectacular show on earth, he has a serious case of ringling envy, and so it just it kills him that ringling has all these bulls and he hasn't got a single one. Um, and, and elephants have always fascinated people. So, yes, I think when people went to see the circus, they really did expect to see an elephant and um, and were disappointed when they didn't. Um, one of the points at which um, Jacob, the main character in the book Water for Elephants, um, starts actually coming out and talking to people about his experience in the circus is when another man claims to have carried water for the elephants in his nursing home. And I was kind of interested in the way that until he was challenged, he didn't really feel the need to tell anyone else the story. It was all within him. And the idea of fictional memoir, not just you writing his memoir, you know, as a young woman writing about an older man, um, but also how much of his memoir you think of as really being the truth and how much of it sort of a fictionalized account of his past. Well, he never spoke about it because 
um, at the end of his season with the Benzini brothers, he witnessed a, a crime that was committed by someone he loved very much. And he stayed silent and protected her through his silence um, beyond her own life. And um, and he's at, at the age of 90 or 93 because he can't remember which. He's, he's just stopped keeping track, really, because he figures it's all over. Um, he's, he's still haunted by this, and he's still seeking absolution. What made you decide to write from the perspective of an older man looking back as opposed to in the moment? I, I actually don't have a ready-built answer for that. I, I kind of I write organically. I had a um, I always know what the crisis is going to be for my books, and I have no idea how I'm going to get there, and I know I have no idea how I'm going to get out of it. But I can say um, that the 93-year-old Jacob uh, was absolutely whole in my head, and um, and that was a little frightening to my husband because I could just kind of turn on the tap and 93-year-old querulous old man came out. <laughs> and, and I really enjoyed writing his chapters because there was so much research involved in the 1931 chapters that I'd get to the end of them just crawling with my tongue hanging out and reach the safety of the nursing home where I at least knew where everything was made out of. You're listening to Live and Ri- Living Writers. I can't speak today here on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. My name's Molly. I'm here with my co-host, Sarah Stedman. We're talking to Sarah Groon about her novel, Water for Elephants. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned.
are listening to The Living Writers Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor, and we were just taking a little musical interlude. Um, this is Sarah Stedman, and I'm here with Molly and our guest Sarah Gruen, and we we're talking about her book, Water for Elephants, and she is going to now read an excerpt for us. I'm going to set it up just a little bit because um, otherwise you won't know what the heck is going on. Um, But the younger Jacob, uh, the 23-year-old Jacob, is in the final year, actually right before his final exams um, in veterinary school at Cornell when he learns that his parents have been killed. And when he returns home to sort out their affairs, he discovers that they've taken out a mortgage to pay for his Ivy League education. So there is absolutely no money. Everything goes to the bank. Um, so he has room and board for six days and then he has the clothes on his back basically. So when he sits down to write his final exams, he has a nervous breakdown and leaves. And that's the only thing standing between him and a vet degree. So he, um, he accidentally ends up on the circus and the lack of degree bothers the circus, not one whit because Ringling Brothers travels with a vet. And so uncle Al, wants a vet and so they they deem they they declare Jacob to be the vet um another uh, circus goes defunct and the way that uncle al builds up the benzini brothers is that every time a circus uh collapses he rushes to the scene and he buys their equipment on the cheap so they've done this they've rushed to the scene and he has bought finally an elephant and he's thrilled and he was told that it was the smartest elephant on the old show etc so and we'd also like to warn you that this um, excerpt contains some language you may find a little bit objectionable. Oh, right. Sorry about Though that. Though not, not a legal <laughs> language, so you know, no, pay and attention. In, and in context, it works, but I, I do apologize for if it's offensive to anyone. Um, so Jacob and his boss, August, and his boss's wife, Marlena, are about to lay eyes on Rosie, the elephant, who turns out to be one of the loves of Jacob's life. And this is the first time they've seen her. The elephant looms against the far sidewall, an enormous beast the color of storm clouds. We push through the workmen and stop in front of her. She is gargantuan, at least ten feet tall at the shoulder. Her skin is mottled and cracked like a scorched riverbed from the tip of her trunk all the way down to her wide feet. Only her ears are smooth. She peers out at us with eerily human eyes. They're amber set deep in her head and fringed with outrageously long lashes. Good God, says August. Her trunk reaches out to us, moving like an independent creature. It waves in front of August, then Marlena, and finally me. At the end of it, a finger-like protrusion wiggles and grasps. The nostrils open and close, snuffing and blowing, and then the trunk retreats. It swings in front of her like a pendulum, an enormous and muscled worm. Its finger grasps the stray pieces of hay from the ground and then drops them again. I watch the swaying trunk and wish it would come back. I hold my hand out in offering, but it doesn't return. August stares in consternation, and Marlena simply stares. I don't know what to think. I've never encountered an animal this large. She rises almost four feet above my head. You the bull man, says a man approaching from the right. His shirt is filthy and untucked, puffing out from behind his suspenders. I am the equestrian director and superintendent of animals, replies August, drawing himself up to full height. "'Where's your bull man?' says the man, squirting a wad of tobacco juice from the corner of his mouth. The elephant reaches out with her trunk and taps him on the shoulder. He whacks her and steps out of reach. The elephant opens her shovel-shaped mouth in what can only be described as a smile and starts to sway, keeping time with the movement of her trunk. "'Why do you want to know?' asks August. "'Just want a word with him is all.' "'Why?' "'To let him know what he's in for,' says the man. "'How do you mean?' "'Show me your bull man, and I'll tell you.' "'August grabs my arm and swings me forward. "'Him, this is my bull man, so what are we in for?' "'The man looks at me, pushes his wad of tobacco deep in his cheek, "'and continues to address August. "'This here is the stupidest damned animal on the face of the earth.' "'August looks stunned. "'I thought she was supposed to be the best bull. "'Al said she was the best bull.' "'The man snorts and squirts a stream of brown saliva toward the great beast.' If she was the best bull, why do you think she was the only one left? You think you're the first show to turn up picking the bones? You didn't even get here for three days. He turns to leave. Wait, August says quickly. Tell me more. Is she a rogue? Nah, just dumb as a bag of hammers. Where did she come from? 
An elephant tramp, some dirty Polak who dropped dead in Libertyville. City gave her up for a song. Wasn't no bargain, though, because she ain't done a damn thing since but eat. August stares at him, pale. You mean she wasn't even with the circus? The man steps over the rope and disappears behind the elephant. He returns with a wooden rod about three feet long with a four-inch metal pick coming off the end. Here's your bull hook. You're going to need it. Good luck on you. As for me, if I never see a bull as long as I, again as long as I live, it'll be too soon. He spits again and walks away. August and Marlena stare after him. I look back just in time to see the elephant pull her trunk from the trough. She lifts it, aims, and blasts the man with such force his hat sails off his head on a stream of water. He stops, his hair and clothes dripping. He is still for a moment. Then he wipes his face, leans over to retrieve his hat, bows to the astonished audience of menagerie workers, and continues on his way. One of the interesting things um, I noticed in your book is that despite the amazing amount of cruelty we see toward animals um, in difference to their plight or actual, you know, straight out being mean to them for no reason, um, it seems like, as you said before, some of the most important relationships in the books are between people and animals. Um, do you, was that something you came upon in your research or something that just kind of spoke to you and seemed like it belonged there? That really was something that I um, just spoke to me and belonged there. Um, the the people on the circus were also exposed to a great amount of cruelty under the, um, under the uh, care of Uncle Al and, and August, who were the circus bosses. And... Um, and so Jacob really spends his time p- trying to protect both the people and the animals of this particular circus from the business practices of Uncle Al. And um, and in, in many ways, it is a three-way it, it's a three-way love story between Jacob and Marlena and and the elephant because they form an unlikely bond that ends up being their salvation. Um, the book is incredibly detailed and um, just really creates a world that sucks you into it. Um, and not knowing very much about circus life, as I'm sure many do not, um, there are things that come up that obviously I wonder if they're things that you researched or things that you came up with. Um such as the practice of red lighting. That's true. It's true. <laughs> that Can was one of the things. That? Yeah. Sure. Um, it's it was the practice of um, it, on older circuses. I don't I don't think it happens anymore. Um, but uh, if if your employer decided he no longer wanted you working for him, they would throw you off a moving train in the middle of the night. If you were lucky, it was within sight of the red light of a rail yard, so that you could find your way back to town. And if you were unlucky, it could be in the middle of a forest. So. Um, that was why it was called red lighting, because they preferably it was within sight of the red light. You're listening to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. We're here with Sarah Gruen, author of Water for Elephants. My name is Molly, and my co-host is Sarah. This is Living Writers. If you'd like to join the conversation, give us a call. The number here is 734-763-3500 if you have any questions or comments about the book or um, circus life in general. We'd be happy to hear from you. And it's my turn now. <laughs> Yikes. Um, let me see. <laughs> I don't know what's wrong with me. <laughs> I, I drink coffee. Come on. Um, I, well, um, okay. <laughs> I don't know. I'm just, I'm just I'm trying to be drowning. fair. I, you're just drowning here. I don't know. Um, one of the things that interested me was your focus. I mean, you talked a little bit before about why you wanted to do this, but your focus on the happenings outside of the ring, besides what happened inside the ring. Um, what are some differences between the sorts of shows that might have been put on um, in the area you're writing about versus now? And do you know what goes on really now behind the scenes? That's what I'm kind of interested in is how much has it changed yeah, I, the funny thing is that I really I do surgical precision research. <laughs> I, <laughs> I research only what I need to know, mm-hmm. and um, so I really don't know a whole lot um, about modern day circuses. I mean, I know nothing about the back end. I I've went to several shows while I was researching the book and dragged the kids, and you know that they thought that was delightful. So I, I know I know more about the um, what happens in the big top now, or in, or or in the arena, as it 
usually is, than I know about what happened in the Big Top in 1931. Um, so... So it's it's uh, I really I'm, I've got this really specialized knowledge about what happens <laughs> at the back end of a 1931 circus, and I really did want to make it 1931 because I wanted to incorporate the tragedy of Jake Leg, which is um, something that is virtually forgotten uh, now, but which devastated the lives of something like a hundred thousand Americans. Um, so Jake Leg was a paralysis coming on from distilled liquor-like substance from ginger, correct? Well, yeah, it was it was from drinking um, Jamaica ginger extract, which by itself is was fine and, um, in fact, tasted good and was used in baking and was sold as a stomach remedy. But when Prohibition came along, um, people who wanted to get drunk were drinking everything, you know, sterno fluid, uh, vanilla extract, lemon extract, and Jamaica ginger. So... Um, the government uh, made forced a rule so that that they had to add, put an additive in Jake to make it taste bad, um, and and so it was this horrible brackish liquid instead of something that was ginger extract. Um, people still drank it, and the manufacturers, of course, knew that this was what people were were doing with it. Um, and in between the years of 1930 and 1931. A few batches of Jake went out. A manufacturer thought he'd gotten clever and discovered a way around the bad-tasting additive. And there is evidence that he wrote to the manufacturers of this chemical that he added, saying, this is safe, right? This won't do anything, right? But And the, they wrote back and said, yes, it's fine. Um, but no tests were done, of course. And so he put this, he added what was essentially a plasticizer instead of the, um, instead of what was supposed to be added to make it unpalatable. And, um, and this plasticizer turned out to have, to do terrible neurological damage to people and it would paralyze their, um, their hands and their feet and their, it, it resulted in what was called, well, if you could still walk at all, it was called Jake walk or limber leg or, or limber walk. And um, basically, these people would walk down the street, lifting their knees really high and flopping their feet in front of them because they couldn't control their feet. And there was a huge stigma involved with this because, of course, you weren't supposed to be drinking Jake. So if you had the Jake walk, that labeled you as someone who drank Jake. And there was no sympathy and there was no treatment and there was no support. And so these people really just uh, just sort of disappeared onto the sidelines. And, you know, these were people who were largely on the fringes of society in the first place. And it's just, it was just a terrible tragedy. Um, and the only reason I know about it is that there was an article in The New Yorker um, two or three years ago at this point about it. And the only reason that person knew about it was because there were some blues songs surviving from 1930 and 31 that talked about Jake Leg Blues and the Limber Leg Walk. And um, I went on the internet and I, I found copies of these blues songs and when I listened to them I was just about in tears because if you listen to them and you don't know what they're talking about it's just oh well it's some good blues but if you listen to them and you understand that this is somebody whose life has just been ruined um, it's just it's really um, it's just almost overwhelming How do you feel like the circus life um, equates with the hobo life because um, the depression era we associate a lot with people traveling on the on the rails not as you know being fed by a circus but just jumping on trains much like Jacob does in the beginning of the book and just going where they can go and they seem to deal with a lot of the same problems um, was that something you thought about while you were writing um, it was and in fact I, I can't remember the name of the book it was uh, but I, I read a book about about the American hobos and um, I, and I'm that's that's territory I might actually delve into still in a, in a future book because it certainly crossed my mind um, most of the hobos uh, were younger than 21, which is not what people expect. Um, people sort of picture now the stereotypical, you know, 40s toothless guy with a with a what they called the turkey over the shoulder, the the all his belongings tied up in a handkerchief on the end of a stick. Um, but no, these were kids. These were just kids, and they're you know whose whose parents were were unemployed and who felt that they. Um, were doing their their families a favor by giving them one less mouth to feed and who just would wander off and make their way um, back and uh, forth across the country and um, and yeah and I, I wish I could name remember the name of the book but it was actually I think there were two books that I got both of them out of print but it was it's, it's really quite devastating again um, a whole lot of heartbreak and uh, life was so desperate that they would 
when they reached the hobo camp, these when they went to bed for the night, if they had shoes, they'd take them off and they'd tie them around their ankles so nobody would steal them while they were asleep. And, um, you know, hobo stew, they would all go off on the bum is what they called it, where they'd go up and down the main street and each each of them trying to, you know, get a cabbage or get a piece of meat from someone or whatever. And they'd all come back. And usually it was the old hobo who um, lived at the camp permanently, who would cook up the stew. And um, and there are, you know, reports of the kids coming up with, and, and the stew was cooked up in a can, by the way. And so they'd, you know, a big can, and, and they'd come up, and the kids would be begging them, you know, dig deep, dig deep, because that's where the meat was at the bottom. Um, not just in terms of the hobo experience, but also the experiences of people who maybe did have jobs or stayed home and had their families. It seems like this is some, some, in some ways sort of a dramatization or a parable about that because you have this young man who loses his life, goes off into this somewhat nightmarish experience, and then comes out again at the end and starts up his life again. Do you feel like maybe that's how the depression was for people or that he somehow got to escape? Um, or there's any commentary on the lives of people that maybe didn't have such a fantastic experience in the book? Well, Jacob escaped the um, horrors of the Depression much earlier than most people did. Um, <clears throat> I knew I knew um, very little about the Depression, actually sort of shamefully little about the Depression when I first started reading this, or writing this and researching this, and um, I ordered all the History Channel documentaries, and I read Studs Terkel and The Grapes of Wrath and everything I could get my hands on to prepare myself, and it was just so awful it i mean people were literally starving to death and the okies and their trek and and how horrible it was when they finally reached california and um it truly did bring out the best and worst in people um so yes jacob came out of it i think obviously the country did come out of it um but not not in the same time frame that that jacob did uh jacob came out of it Early, because um, uh, many of the plot points in my in my book parallel the um, Old Testament story of Jacob, and in order to well, Marlena's last name is Larsh, which is an anagram of Rachel, and in the Bible, uh, Rachel when when he's he's already been he was fooled into marrying Leah, who is um, Catherine Hale, um, and doesn't play much of a much of a role in in my book but there is a Leia uh but when Jacob is finally able to marry Marlena he has or Rachel in the Bible he has to perform another 7 years of animal husbandry for um his uncle Laban who of course uh uncle Al's full name in my book is Alan Bunkle which is a phonetic anagram for uncle Laban so that is why that is why he spent the next 7 years at Ringling doing animal husbandry <laughs> <laughs> um why the biblical par- I mean parallels just because I was a lit student, and I, because and, I can, because I can. That's right. I thought it would be fun. It's not a secret message. This is the Da Vinci Code for elephants. No, readers. but if you know what, if it'll sell more books, sure. It's the oh. Da Vinci Code for elephants. You heard it here. There's a secret message. <laughs> Decode all the names of all the animals and put them in the right order. Play play the audio version backwards. <laughs> play this interview backwards. <laughs>
listening to WCBN 88.3 FM Ann Arbor. I'm here with Sarah Studman and our guest today who is Sarah Gruen, author of Water for Elephants. This is Living Writers. Thank you for listening. We've got about oh, 13 minutes left. So if you have any last minute questions for the author, give us a call. Our number is 763-3500. We'd be happy to hear from you. So we just cut in rather abruptly with the Stars and Stripes Forever. Um, Sarah, would you care to explain to the listening audience? Um, sure. If you ever hear that when you're in a circus tent, run for your lives. <laughs> it's known as the disaster march. And um, when something's going really, really wrong, and by that I mean the big top is on fire <laughs> or something similar, the band will switch to that and um, and you get out. <laughs> That happened in the Hartford fire, um, which is probably the worst uh, circus disaster of all time. And I think it was in 43 and 143 people died or something, and many of them children. But the big top had been um, had been um, waterproofed with something. I want to say kerosene, but I don't think it was kerosene. It was something almost as flammable. And someone, um, an ex-circus worker, uh I don't know if he did it on purpose. I don't think anyone knows if he did it on purpose. But the the as a result of his cigarette, the big top caught fire, and um, the band play switched to Stars and Stripes Forever. The Flying Walendas were actually on the wire at that moment and got down and got out. And the elephant mass, the elephant trainer or handler, um, when as soon as they heard, as soon as he heard the music, he yelled tails which means line up and link, you know, trunk to tail. And he got all of the elephants out. Um, And then, but of course, the the people, the the rubes had no idea what was going on, although um, circus workers were running in and out and risking their own lives trying to trying to get the trying to get the children mostly and and, all of the spectators. But, you know, there's a large percentage of children in there out. And it was, uh, yeah, it was a terrible disaster. So Stars and Stripes Forever, if you're here in a circus tent, get out. I wonder if they're going to change it now. So (laughs) I've wrecked the code. (laughs) Or if they have changed it since then and it's no longer the They might have, yeah. (laughs) Now we're going to stampede. (laughs) (laughs) They're like, oh my gosh, I was at the circus last week and they played that. I wonder what happened. (laughs) I I personally will be running for the door. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. Um, So what do you have you know, coming up next. Have you started work on a new project? Yeah, I have. You know, I was I was a day away from starting another book when I when I saw the newspaper picture that started me on Water for Elephants and I kinda decided I'd pick it up again and I was sort of messing with it and writing a little bit here and there and there's just something about it that either it, it 
died on the vine or else there's just something that's not gelling about it yet because I was kind of messing around and shopping on eBay and doing all the other stuff when, that I do when I'm trying to avoid writing. And uh, my mother sent me a link to a place that's um, that's teaching bonobo apes um, to communicate using um, specially designed software uh, with symbols and things. And boom, I I'm there. I'm all over it. I'm doing bonobo apes next. And as part of my research, I'm really hoping that I'll get to go and and finally meet Coco, who is a gorilla, not a bonobo. But um, I've uh, loved Coco since I was a kid, and I communicated with her person, Penny Patterson, for a long time when I was 12. Uh, she was really, she was just so sweet. She responded to every letter. So I'm hoping I can finally, finally go and meet Coco. And there's also the Great Ape Trust in Des Moines, Iowa, which actually does work with bonobos. And so um, I'm going to try to get up there as well. I'm really into bonobos. There's oh, actually, they're so great. I think a chimp. I'm not sure. And and the Central Park Zoo that has adopted a kitten. Also, if you're yeah. interested in that, you want to go see it. Well, I'm really Coco, excited about that. Coco chimp. has had um, kittens over the years, and she named her first one was named All Ball, and I think she was just devastated when All Ball died. And it, you know, these these apes really do love their pets. <laughs> <laughs> so you seem to have a lot of sympathy for animals. I am just a huge animal lover. My house is filled with decrepit rescued animals, and <laughs> I'm the person if there's an orphan bird or an, you know a wounded skunk, the neighbors come and get me. So, <laughs> <laughs> do you think that a lot of the plot points on your novels, um, some of the more human characteristics of these animals, are things that you would attribute to animals, or that are maybe just pulled out a little bit from? Fantasy. No, no I'm, I really do not anthropomorphize. I, I think that I was true to elephant um, nature here. I, I went to the Kansas City Zoo with a former elephant trainer and just watched their body language and asked him how they would respond if they were angry at someone, you know, what would their body language be if someone they disliked approached them? Um, and and he, it's funny. He was actually gored by an elephant twenty years ago. That that's not funny. What's but um, interesting? But it's interesting. He he returned to work in the aviary. But um, but what's funny is that twenty years later, when he took me back there, some of the females that were uh, were there were from his days as a handler, and they remembered him. And he called to them, and they came over as close as they could because you're fairly well separated from the elephants for safety reasons at the zoo. But they stood as close as they could and purred, just purred. And and so obviously I wrote that into the book. But it's like this enormous. Hoover, you know, because it all happens in the trunk and there's stuff clinking around in there. And it's, <laughs> it was really great. It's good to hear that you're on the side of animals or people too, not not anthropomor- anthropomorphizing them. I can't speak today at all. That's a hard word no matter how you slice um, it. <laughs> and we should have brought water in here with us, man. <laughs> but in terms of, you know, them being able to remember and giving them credit. Um, you're listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. This is Living Writers. We've only got a few minutes left, so if you have a question, you better get it in right now. We're here with author Sarah Gruen, who wrote Water for Elephants. Um, one of the things um, in the book that we haven't talked about yet is how, I'm just going to say deranged, since they're not real people, many of the characters are. And is this a, sort of just something you got from research? Just the idea that who would want to be in a circus must be deranged? Well, I'm thinking... I'm sort of thinking of only two really deranged yeah. characters, um, and they both um, they both came out of my imagination. It's um, you know, as a, as a novelist, you really need to push things to the limit to to get to raise tension and to um, to keep the story moving. I mean, there was a very bad circus boss back in the 30s who was who was arrested for red lighting six men um, in a season. He, I think he actually. Um, he either got out on bail or he made off before they took him away, but he just kind of disappeared, and that was that. But um, know that the two the two evil people um, in my book, I, you know, it's it's there for it's it's relevant plot wise. I'll just say that. It's amazing how dark the book manages to be without becoming, you know, truly just gory or. <laughs> It's shocking. I mean, you know, it's it's shocking and gory in some places, but not. It, it was pretty all intense that. to it's write. Not an expose, yeah, I guess is what I mean. I'm, I'm starting to make it sound like an expose when I'm like cruelty to animals. I just wanted to make it clear that. Well, I really, um, you know, in, in parts of it, I had to remind myself that Rosie was fictional because she was 
far and away my favorite character. And so um, when bad things were happening to her, I had to step back and remind myself that no elephants were harmed during the writing of this book. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And in fact, at the end of it, um, it was a very exhausting book to write because it was so dark and because there was so much research involved. And um, and I, I wrote the final third or final half of it in my walk-in closet with the window covered over and wearing noise reduction headphones just because I just had to concentrate and I felt like I had 16 open threads that I needed to tie up and when I finally staggered forth into the daylight again um, I I went through a period of of, you know postpartum depression because I I no longer had an elephant in my life Uh. I bet you could find one if you tried hard enough. I think the neighbors might object. <laughs> a little bit. I already have two goats and a horse. And <laughs> yeah. Maybe the goats and the horse would also object. <laughs> um, before I completely forget to mention it, um, Sarah is appearing tonight at Nicola's Books. Is the reading at 7? Do you know? I uh, like it's quickly... <sighs> Looking, yes, seven o'clock. Seven o'clock at Nicholas Books, and Nicholas is, I think, at Maple and Jackson in the Westgate Shopping Center. There you go. Um, let me see. I, um, get, get a cup of coffee. Like eight <laughs> cups of coffee. I think that's what I need. I'm oh. wow. Um, Maybe we should just end with the Thai Elephant Orchestra. Yeah, oh, the Thai Elephant it. Orchestra. So we should probably tell you a little bit about this. We should have played more of it. Um, what is what is the conservation project called? It's some conservation project. There were a number of. I think it's the Thai Elephant Conservancy. Yeah. But double check that because um, I have I have yeah. several elephant paintings at yeah. home from them. And they sort of rescue elephants that have had handlers taking them into the city, um, trying to make money off of them, and, and it's doing not lumber sustainable. Work. And doing lumber work, and they're no longer able to do that, or not sustainable. They're sort of abandoned elephants um, that are taken in, and they do art. They are used in musical projects. They live. Whole Hopefully a happy life, and they play harmonicas, um, <laughs> and hopefully get as much lemonade as they want. Yeah. <laughs> so the song that we will end with is called JoJo, and the instrumentation is a synthesizer, a gong, two renats, and a reed. And and every musician is an elephant, and in every elephant yes. a musician. This is Living Writers on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Free speech radio news is coming up next.
Free Speech Radio News for Wednesday, June 7th, 2006. From KPFA in Berkeley, I'm Andrea Lewis, sitting in for Aro Bogado. Democratic senators say their Republican counterparts are avoiding important legislative issues. And grenade attacks in popular tourist spots have weakened Kashmir's tourist industry. These stories and